Hello and welcome to the podcast, Love, Life and Loss. Last week you heard my story, but if you missed it, then please do take a listen. And this week you're going to hear Dawn's story. Listen as Dawn goes into detail about her traumatic birth with her last daughter and the miscarriage of her son. She talks openly and honestly about the challenges she's had to face and how she's overcome them. So please join us. Hi Dawn, welcome to the Hi. podcast, Love, Life and Love. Hello. So this is, this is obviously, you're, you're the co-host, we started yes. the one with the first series with my story, so now we're going to hear your story. So um, do you want to just tell me a little bit about, about yourself and your background? Yeah, um, so yeah, hi guys, <laughs> I'm um, Dawn Morton Young, um, I am a coach um and I'm also a singer and I'm also a HR consultant um but uh, on top of that I have four children and um so I'm the mother of four my eldest is 23 and then I have 18 um I have 14 and I have 11 so lots of birth experiences um which is why this um podcast was always so interesting to me and really wanted to um work with Louisa to bring this out to the world because there isn't anything really that talks about the experiences that some of us face when we're going through birthing and bringing life into the world you know and 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 what could happen and the kind of support that we may not get and may need and also that some people are just not aware that some of these things are happening to women uh, because their own experiences were okay and so it's just not really it's about the kind of the awareness as well so that's where I come from and where where I am so yeah yeah because I mean I find that well my mum always always reminds me how dangerous childbirth is and I think people forget that how dangerous it is that you know we are risking our lives by bringing a baby into this world so um and there is so many different experiences but all you ever hear is the good experiences you get pregnant and you have a lovely pregnancy and then you come home with a beautiful baby but unfortunately it's not always like that so um this is one of the reasons why we've decided to do this podcast so we can talk about the not so nice experiences but you know, because there's lots of women who do experience that, lots of families who do experience that. So it's nice to have these conversations and for people to know they're not alone. So you've got and four also children. we've got the not nice and it's also oh sorry, I was saying it's also the not nice, but also knowing how people have come through. And I think you know uh, we sort of uh, spoke about it a bit uh, on the last episode, but you know how you've been able to come through and turn your pain into service for others, even on this platform, is what I think we want to share with people. That there is uh, light at the end of the tunnel sounds too flippant, but there is life after loss. Um, yeah. And yeah. yeah, I think that's kind of where we are. So yeah, I have four four children. My youngest daughter. Alea, she has special educational needs. So she has um, a very rare condition. I think there's only 14 children in the world that have the condition that Alea has. 
um, and she doesn't necessarily present the symptoms of that condition totally. Um, and it took about five years for them to diagnose her. So maybe there's a bit about that that we could talk about. But at the end of, of this, of my kind of birth story, because the birth story was only the first part of what has been a very full and interesting story with my daughter, my youngest daughter in particular. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I do. I would like to talk about that. But what, don't you, what I would like though is if you tell us your story from the beginning. So you've got you've got four children. I mean, I yes. don't know how you managed to do what you do with four children. Please <laughs> tell me your, your your secret. But if you start from the beginning, so 23 years ago, was that your first pregnancy? That was, yeah. So my first pregnancy that I know of anyway, um, and I was 18 when I got pregnant, I met um, my eldest daughter's dad uh, in college. Um, he wasn't in my college. His friend was in my college and I happened to start to talk to him on the phone one day. So, um, yeah, so had that, had her when I was 19 in September 1998, shows my age. And um, she, yeah, was a typical, I guess, birth, pregnancy, all of that type of thing. I had a bit of postnatal depression I now look back at it now as being postnatal depression. I didn't know I was a teenager. Um, I was working and I've always been quite independent. So I was working and all of that at the time. But I remember because her dad wasn't present at the birth um, and I was just about, I was on my own really. I think I gave birth and I think my best friend might've been there. And I remember coming home to my mum's house and having Sinead in my arms and sitting down on my bed and the bed breaking. And I remember the bed breaking and for some reason I just burst into tears because for me, everything was so overwhelming. I'd come home with this baby. I think my hormones was everywhere. Um, and then it was like the bed was broken and the world was broken in my eyes at the time. And I remember my mum came and she brought a speaker. You know, you get the little box speakers. Yeah. And she pulled it under where the bed had fallen in the middle to prop it up. And I was able and it was like magic had happened. And I just felt it was like my mum came and saved the day. She put a speaker under and popped the bed up. But I do think that I did have a little bit of postnatal depression um, at that point in time. Maybe not depression, but postnatal. I guess what they would call blues then. Maybe it wasn't as deep yeah. as a depression. I was going to say, I think everybody had, I think, well, lots of people experience the baby blues and you don't realise what's happening unless someone's there to explain to you at the time. You don't know what's happening. and You think you're alone in it as well. I feel yeah. sad about it. Yeah, exactly. And you're not. And it's also about I've just had a baby. Why am I sad? It's also that type of thing. And I think as a teenager, which I think is probably another topic as well, is that as young people, as teenagers, you kind of had well, I had this fairy tale thing in my head that I, you know, I've, I'm pregnant now. So that's it. He's going to stay with me. And that's from other things that would have happened with me growing up and all the rest of it and traumas and things like that. But I think that there are a lot of teenage or young pregnancies whereby 
it's uh, the female is sometimes the woman sometimes trying to compensate for other things and they think that things are going to be different now that I've got a baby or that I've got someone to love or someone that's going to love me unconditionally yeah. and I think that that's also a thing to explore uh, particularly around the treatment of young people in the health service as well um, in terms of in the maternity services because I've seen it myself and I experienced it as well the kind of way that you are maybe looked down upon or thought of because you've appeared as a young person that's pregnant. So yeah, so that was my 23 year old Shanae. And then I got with my now ex-husband and started a relationship with him. And I had my second daughter in 2004, um, Amana. So she is now 18. And then I had a bit of a personal, don't know what to call it situation that I'm not think I'm ready to talk about on the podcast just yet but I may talk about but I had a life experience and a life change at that time which meant that I was um separated from my eldest daughter for a little while then Amana was kind of my uh I don't know what to call it sort of my um comfort or my thing yeah my lifeline at that time and then I got married. I, when I got married, I was pregnant with my third daughter, um, Shia, or Haya. Yeah, her name is Hebrew. It means life. Amana's is Egyptian, and it means the place where the sun meets the horizon. The sun meets the horizon. Um, Lovely. Yeah. And then, so I, yeah, then had Shia. And then Alea, a few years later, was a complete surprise. So if I tell you the story that I remember exactly when Alea was conceived and uh, my ex-husband and I were actually, we might as well say separated. Our relationship wasn't going very well at that time. And, um, oh, and Alea's name is Arabic and it means greatest gift of God. (laughs) So, um, so she, yeah, so I knew exactly when it happened and I went and I got the morning after pill the following day, but it didn't work. And I still ended up pregnant, which is why I'm a firm believer that, you know, she was supposed to be here. Everything that's happened with her, it's all for a reason. And it was a little bit um, stressful for me, I guess. I I guess I wasn't in the happiest place. I didn't want another child. I definitely didn't want four children. That hadn't been anything that I'd ever thought about doing. I was always trying for a boy and ended up with girls. And I just accepted that I was going to have my girls and that was going to be what it was. Anyway, Alea decided that she wanted to be here. So by this time, when I had Shire, actually, I was more, I went more natural. So I did have Shire in hospital, but I had her in the birthing centre and I had no uh, no pain relief. I think I had a little bit of gas and air, but I didn't really, and I hit no birth. Um, so I decided to do the same thing with Alea and that I wanted a home birth. What is a home birth? I want you to water birth because I had Shia actually in the water. So she came out in the water, which I thought was lovely. Um, and uh, especially as she's a Pisces. So I thought that was quite appropriate for her. Um, so, yeah, so I had her in the water. So I wanted to do the same thing at home or it's hypnobirth. I didn't want interference and all of that type of thing. But I couldn't afford to have a private midwife, which now knowing what I know now, I think for a lot of people if you really want to get that have that authentic experience then paying for a private midwife if I if God came and reversed the menopause on me now and I have 
happen to be found with child as the Virgin Mary, because that's the only way this happened. <laughs> I envy you that you've would... gone through menopause. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I'm in early menopause. Maybe that's another topic of discussion. But yeah, so uh, yeah, if he was to come and reverse all of that and I got pregnant, I would definitely be trying my hardest to be able to get private midwifery care. And that's not about the NHS midwives, but my experience is that if you want a particular type of birth that is outside of the parameters of what they feel is normal textbook goes with their little tick yeah. boxes and their checklists then you're in in it, you have an issue throughout my pregnancy with Alea I actually had a midwife that was he she knew about hypnobirthing she had done it before she was very pro-natural all of the stuff that I was doing like I didn't want to be induced um I wanted to take um homeopathic remedies to get me into labor that has always worked for me before um and so that's what, and she was very open to that but what happened was when I went into labor she was on holiday and that's the thing so oh, no. you know like with the NHS you can't guarantee that you're going to get your midwife yeah. you yeah. don't really have your midwife it's kind of this is the person who hopefully if they're on duty they will see to you but if they're not on duty no so I had um I went into labor and I think I was about two weeks overdue because they wanted to induce me and I was telling them, no, I'm not coming in. So um, the listeners to this podcast or watchers of this podcast, you will learn probably over the time that we're together that I'm not very, I don't do very well at being told what I'm supposed to be doing, particularly if I have strong views about it and I have strong views about women's health and the fact that we are made to give birth, that is what we're made to do. And that if there was less interference by doctors, for those of us that are healthy enough to go through pregnancy is the better off we will be. And I know that your story is different to that. Yeah, yeah no, I appreciate um, what you're saying though. I was like, I'm not going to be induced. You'd have to come and drag me out of the house. And so I went down to, I went to Neil's Yard Remedies and I got my homeopathic stuff. And I'm like, you don't worry about me. I will, because I was just waiting, because I thought she'll come when she comes. And if she's late, then that means that she wasn't cooked yet and she's not ready. Um, and she'll come, you know. So because, because they were really like, you know, you're, you're going to have to, if you don't come in and be induced, then we're not going to be able to, they're threatening me of not being able to help me when I come into labour and all of this type of stuff. Oh, so I went and I took a homeopathic remedy. The following morning after taking it, I felt that pop. And there was my water's gone. So now I'm in labor. I'd obviously called them and said to them, I'm in labor. And I kind of knew or had an idea around how long I, my labors have been quite quick. After my first daughter, Sinead was 10 hours and then Shia was four hours. Um, so, you know, they were getting, you know, smaller and smaller yeah. gaps every time. So they sent this midwife round. But so she came in, but she was an older, older lady. And she I remember one of the first things that she said to me was, why are you giving birth at home? <laughs> and I said, um, because I wanted to have a, a home birth. Uh, my last labor, I didn't need pain relief. You know, I've I've never had complications as such. I think that I had a bit of excessive bleeding um, with amana but looking back at it i think that that was because of being up in stirrups where they put me on my back 
you know, giving okay. birth, tearing, all of that type of yeah. thing, which I now put into so that's not something. So that's not something you want to hear whilst you're already in the process. Maybe have that <laughs> conversation when you're deciding what you want to, when you're doing your birth plan, but not when you're already actually in labour. In labour, yeah. And so she'd, she'd come round and she'd done the first checks and she was like, oh, you're only, I don't know, maybe I was about three to four centimetres dilated, something like that. But I was very, because I was hypnobirthing, I was very calm. I wasn't like, even when I got uh, what in hypnobirthing, we call it a tightening or a surge. When I got a surge, I would just kind of go out in the hallway, lean against, and I'm looking out there because it's the same house now, lean against the wall and rock my hips from side to side and kind of breathe. And, you know, my husband was there sort of, you know, talking and rubbing your back and it's okay and all of that type. But I could feel that I was in active labour and I could feel that every time I got a tightening or I got a surge, I could feel that it was bringing the baby down. And so she, the midwife started to say to me, oh, you know, I could see her with her little forms and she would ask me things and come and, you know, take my temperature. And then she's doing this and that. And then she's like, oh, have you been to the toilet? When was the last time you went to the toilet? And I said, oh, mm, I don't know. I think this morning, but obviously my water was breaking at the same time. So it could have been that I was going to the toilet, but equally it could have been that I was, it was the water's breaking. And she was like, oh, I'm going to need you to. And I remember she's holding this piece of paper. She's going, I'm going to need you to go to the toilet. And I was like, okay, I don't feel like going now, if I'm honest, I'm in labour. And then she came back, you know, like 15 minutes later, um, have you been to the toilet yet? Do you want to go? No, I don't really want to go to the toilet. You know, I think that the baby's going to be coming soon. And she said to me, oh, no, 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 your baby's not coming. I just checked you. You was only four centimetres dilated. You've got hours and hours to go. And I'm looking at her <laughs> and I'm saying to her, and then I said to her, my labors are quick. I can feel that the baby's going to come soon. I yeah, and she right. was basically dismissing me and, oh, no, 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 no. I need you to go to the toilet. And she came back about three or four times saying to me that she needed me to go to the toilet. And by the fourth time, I think my ex-husband was like, oh, you might as well go because she's just not going to stop. And she needs to tick this thing off on her list. And if she doesn't tick that thing off on her list. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe the world is going to blow up. We don't know. So <laughs> let's just it go was, to the loop. Obviously, it was obviously important to her. <laughs> <laughs> it was important to her. So I've gone upstairs. I waited for uh, a contraction to pass. And then I said, right, now. Because they, they were coming like every... Oh, two minutes, something like that. You were in full established labour then. I was, I was here. I was ready, <laughs> and so um, I went upstairs to the loo, and I remember I sat down on the toilet, and as soon as I sat down, it's like I just felt it was, it was almost as if that was all that Alea needed to make her appearance was that bit of gravity and that stooping down posture, which if she'd let me get into the pool. I would have kind of been in, you know, because you can't, you know, you have to yeah. be quite low. And so, um, yeah, so basically, but you know what? In hindsight, even as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking perhaps if I'd gotten into the pool, then um, she wouldn't have even acknowledged that the baby was coming. You know, like she, Alea would have probably been coming out and she wouldn't have acknowledged it. Anyway, I've sat down on the toilet. I felt like this. It, I felt as if she had come out. And so I screamed all the hypnobirthing, 
all of the breathing, all of the calming your mind and visualizing the flower opening up, all of that <laughs> went completely out of the window because I've now thought I'm giving birth to my baby in the toilet <laughs> and I don't know what's going to happen. So I've screamed. I think I'm trying to remember who came first, whether it was my ex-husband or whether it was the midwife. I think it was my ex-husband because he was definitely faster than her. Um, and um, so I think he came and went to grab my hand, but I didn't want to get up off of the toilet because I don't know whether the baby's hanging out. Like, I don't know what's happening. And if you can imagine the panic that I'm panicking at that, that point in time. Um, and so she's come upstairs and then she's come and said, you need to come out of the toilet. And I'm like, I don't know whether she went and looked behind me, but my toilet cubicle is tiny. It's like one of those little box loos. So there's not space. And so I remember kind of trying to go onto the floor. I'm still getting contractions, mind. Trying to crawl out onto the floor and away. And as she's gone, she said, yes, the head's there. And I remember thinking to myself, I cannot believe that I'm here about to give birth on my landing. And at the time as well, we had, we was having work done outside. Somebody, they were doing a driveway for us, putting a driveway down. So the workmen were outside and they were playing the music. And I remember Hotel California was playing. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, what? is actually going on <laughs> oh my god don't can i ask how old was you when this was happening as well so alaya is 11 now and i'm about to be 43 so what is that 32 so you're still quite young really old enough to have experiences but not that old yeah. really yeah yeah and so i um so i'm on all fours outside the bathroom she's like oh the baby's gonna come you're gonna get another contraction and then you need to push so when the contraction came I was in so much adrenaline that the push that I pushed was to have been really really strong and so Alea's just flown out in that moment so she's come out and she's blue and she's not really breathing and so I'm obviously still on all fours because the placenta, the umbilical, none of that. Yeah. Everything is still attached. Everything is still there. They're trying to rub her. She's not breathing. My ex-husband's just standing up over, looking down in complete and utter horror. And I'm crying and screaming by this point. And if you can think about how my whole experience of birthing and what I wanted my experience of birthing to be, to now be in what was a horror movie where I've given birth on my landing. I'm on all fours. I haven't been able to hold my child. I haven't heard her cry. I'm in the opposite. I can't see her. So my head is this way. She is that way. I cannot hear a cry. And I'm literally there screaming, like, what's happening to my baby? What's happening to my baby? My body is doing its own thing. It's all of this stuff. They brought the oxygen thing up, but I don't think they needed to give her oxygen. And then they did all the obs. But you know what? For me, even if I, when I think about it now, my issue was the lack of an apology from the midwife at the time. And the reason why I say that is because I was telling her all that time that I can feel that the baby is coming. I don't want to go upstairs. 
I don't want to go to the toilet. I was communicating it to my ex-husband to communicate to her. She doesn't want to go upstairs. She doesn't want to go to the toilet. And you had this list that you was determined that you had to tick, tick off every single aspect. So the listening to the mother and what the mother is feeling was completely out of the window. And then you've heard me, obviously from down here, now you've been able to tick your list off. You've heard me from down here scream upstairs you've come upstairs you've watched me deliver my baby on the floor her being blue because she was born too quickly the pool being downstairs and there isn't even because of your position or where you see your position and your professional capacity that you are the midwife and you are here to help you couldn't even think to yourself i've ruined this woman's birthing experience like yeah, single-handedly like, like not your first could you imagine if that was yeah. your first experience if that was my first and I say that even with Alea and the difficulties that she had if she was my first I would never have gone back never ever would have had another child and so you know you single-handedly ruined my and you don't even have the humility what because you're a midwife to say actually you know what I'm really sorry that you know she has been born this way I honestly believed that you had hours to go and that is why I sent you to say something. But it's the sort of the lack of mutual respect for mothers. Um, yes. I don't know whether, again, because I'm a mother of colour, whether that was something that sort of came into the mix of that. But I just felt really poorly treated. And even though you could kind of see she was sorry from her actions afterwards in the sense of what the care that she was trying to give and all the rest of it. It. but even then her shift ended and she just kind of left the next person midwife came in and that was the end of it oh, and, wow. and I remember idea? that she was retired I remember that she was a retired midwife and they must have had a shortage and they were they had asked her to come back in so I was like you don't even want to be here actually you don't want to be here. You don't really like your job anymore. It's just because of the money now that you've decided to come back. Otherwise, you would never have retired because you don't have to retire now. Retirement is a choice. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that you were there and you told me that, oh, yes, I'm retired, but I do a couple of shifts now and then, that you're basically in there for whatever the easiest time it is that you could have. And you saw my natural birth experience, which was very different from the norm of what you were used to and you just decided I'm not having a bar of this <laughs> I'm gonna do whatever it is that I need to do so that I can have a, a, a relaxed time here and I get it you know if you have a list of things that you're expecting the mother is expected to do or exhibit or that you need to be able to report particularly because you're not in the hospital in the safety of the hospital I get it but you know what I would have preferred you to do I would have preferred you to call back to the hospital and say, you know what? I don't think that I've got enough experience to deal with this particular type of birth. Can we send somebody else? Yeah, I think listening to you, that is a, it's a common theme that uh, midwives often tell us mothers how we're feeling, how we should be feeling and what's happening and not trusting us to know our own instincts and to trust our own body. I, my first two daughters, they did the same as me. And when I told them my body's telling me to push, oh, no, 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 you're not ready yet. I, I mean, my first daughter, I remember I had to wait for the shift changeover before I could push because the first midwife wouldn't, wouldn't listen to me. Luckily, it was shift changeover. So when the second midwife came in and I said, my body's telling me to push, she's like, okay, well, if your body's telling you to push, then push. So, and the same thing happened with my, my second daughter as well. Yeah. So it is a common theme. And, and again, listening to you, 
um, what resonates when you said that you was quite calm and relaxed and even though you was having your contractions, you was doing your hypnobirthing. Um, I think that's a common theme with people of colour. Um, I think we can hold our, our pain better yeah. than some other yeah. people. So because we're not screaming and shouting and being frantic, they just think, oh, everything's fine and it's, things aren't moving when actually they are. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think that that's, that's part of when we talk about, and I know particularly with your story, we talk about things that need to change within the maternity services. And I think that part of it is that cultural awareness about the fact that women of colour seem to have higher pain thresholds. Many of us do. Not all of us, but we seem to have a higher pain threshold and be able to deal with pain in a different way. And I think some of that is also about how we were brought up in the sense of, I know that many of us um, from, from, a, from a Black Caribbean background, and I'm, I can't talk about a Black African background, I'm not quite sure, but I think there might have been similar experiences, is when we got in trouble and when we were disciplined and when we got smacked, we were told not to cry. Yeah, <laughs> you know, if something is happening, to cry for. Yeah, give you something to yeah, cry for. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of us grew up with having to hold in our pain which is not the greatest way to experience but it, I think that it has come through in things like our birthing experience so we don't we weren't really allowed to scream out in in yeah. pain or or to make we we were taught to kind of firm things you yeah, better firm are, I think it. it is it's <laughs> definitely a cultural thing that we are taught to you know to you got to deal with it life's tough deal with yeah. it things hurt be and be dignified it. and dignified in your in your pain don't let people know that you're suffering as well that's the other kind of thing um theme that I think resonates there but so you know because of that I think that they there isn't enough awareness of the cultural differences and those kinds of things to be able to serve us properly um uh and I and, I, and I'm not sure you know as you say I wasn't young at the time, but I was young to a certain extent. And things like doing something about that, um, and particularly with what then went on to happen with Alea after the fact, my birth experience wasn't something that I was um, kind of, I guess, focusing on to advocate about and to go and talk about and to say, actually, what happened to me was out of order. And, and shouldn't have happened. I should not have given birth to my child on the landing. And the midwife should not have been so, um, you know, ambiguous about it and, and not really taking responsibility for her part in what happened and what could have happened with Alea, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so after that, it took me a little while. I think Alea was quite a fitful, um, fretty baby in the, in the newborn stage, which I had not ever had and I and I do think it's a combination of the fact that I was I was quite unhappy throughout the majority of my pregnancy I think was one thing and also the kind of the birth experience because I don't think that we necessarily take into account what that experience is like for a baby coming into the world from being in the dark warm and safe and coming yeah. out into bright lights and noise and being manhandled and moved about which is one of the reasons why I wanted the water birth to kind of just have that gentler way of um introducing her into the world and so she was quite a fretty baby which gave me a lot of stress uh, people always say to me like 
how do you, your children are always so well behaved and sleep through the night and all the rest of it. But it's always been a bit of a non-negotiable for me. Um, even since, even instinctively from having my first daughter, I like to sleep. I'm not a morning person. I'm not that one that, you know, when people have, I, I hear it with my friends all the time oh yeah my child gets up at six o'clock in the morning that would be a nightmare for me um, and so I was always very conscious of getting them into sleeping patterns and I remember my eldest daughter I remember there was a time when so I used to feed her every four hours whatever it was and then when she started to eat solid food a little bit of like and I think at that time that was at about three months I remember one time she woke up at like seven o'clock in the morning and I was like I know that you're not hungry and I've, I've fed you. So you're going to just have to cry and understand that this is not what happens. <laughs> Mummy doesn't come. And she was in the cot beside me. So I knew she was okay. But I just left her to cry because I knew there was nothing wrong. And then after that, she just went back to sleep. And that was it. And now most of the kids, they wake up at like... 10 o'clock, nine. If I don't wake them up, they will oh, be. Oh, you need to give me your secret, Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so with her, it was just very different. Even as a newborn baby, having this baby that you didn't just feed and put down. She was very fretful and very, and I, I took her to a cranial osteopath to have a look and see. And they were like, yeah, a lot of her, her skull has not closed as it should have been. They could see that there was trauma during the birth experience of her kind of just shooting out really um and so a lot of that I think impacted on our lives after the fact and I think that that is also important is that you what they don't realize is that your birth experience is actually setting you up for early motherhood and if things go wrong in that experience it can impact the life how you view your child it can impact things like baby blues it can impact all of that and that, that it's so important what happens in that labor suite or in that home birth or in that birthing unit or or whatever it whatever it is yeah it, it really is and there's and there's loads loads more research now as well to show the impact on trauma at birth as well and how it follows people throughout their life as well yeah so it, it is really important that people don't give it enough attention. I don't think. I think we're we're slowly getting there. Like hypnobirthing is, is becoming more common than it yeah. was probably eleven years ago. So probably more midwives are accustomed to it, but we're, we're still very behind. I think. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's about, about that. They had a big thing about having choice for mothers and being able to choose where they. But then, if you're not training your midwife to be able to accommodate those choices, then how does that? work will play out which is why you know as I said again for me if I were to get pregnant now and I know you know when and if any of my daughters have children I, I depending on what they want I will be very much like okay maybe we can get you a doula or get you a, a midwife or something because it's a it's a you know I think that having somebody that understands what you want to experience and is able to speak for you is incredibly important. That is, I mean, I can't agree more with that, to be honest with you, because I think when you're in that situation, especially if it's traumatic, like what you've just explained, you just automatically trust that professional to make the best decisions on your behalf. And the problem is, if they're not listening to the parents, and they're not communicating very well to hear your side and take into account what you're saying, they make that decision based on, I don't know, past experience or whether it fits in the box or whatever, but it doesn't yeah. always work. It really doesn't. And it's very hard 
to be strong in that in that point in that moment to say no no you're wrong I don't care if you're the professional you're wrong 